0: Holy Spirit, I ask that now you would come and help us to hear a word from you. Open up our minds and hearts that we might receive the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak through my humble words. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, I can't be thinking of any palm tree right now because of the weather around us right now, but believe it or not, it is Palm Sunday. Uh, This is the day where We celebrate uh, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And the people, they were so excited to welcome Jesus that day. They were shouting Hosanna. And as Matthias said, they they had uh, this expectation that Jesus was the Messiah. And they thought that the Messiah, the coming king, would come and he would overthrow the Romans, regain their political power and independence, and return them to the glory days of King David. They thought that all those things were going to happen. So the people, they had a mis- mistaken expectation, but they did have one thing right. They had, they had it right that, yes, Jesus was a coming king, coming to conquer the enemies of the people. But it wasn't what they expected at all. And today, we're in week six of our sermon series on the cross, and uh, believe it or not, even after all the weeks we've spent on this, I think we, many Christians still have many misunderstandings, the wrong expectations of what Jesus is about to accomplish when he goes to the cross and rises again. Uh, And I want to give you a a little bit of a a game here for your own mind and your own head, a little quiz. Uh, And I want you to think about what the end of this Bible verse really says. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was... How would you finish this verse? A, to forgive us our sins. Was it B, to justify us by his blood. C, to grant us salvation. D, to demonstrate his love for us. All of the above, right? All are theologically true. But wrong, I've tricked you. It's E, none of the above. This verse does not end in any of those wonderful truths of the scriptures. No, there's another reason. There's a big story going on, and here's what it is it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Isn't that shocking? Isn't that a little bit surprising? We don't normally associate Jesus' work, Jesus' conquering uh, salvation on the cross and resurrection. We don't really associate that with the devil very much, do we? That's just not our expectation. And so today, I want to show you how the cross and resurrection were Jesus' victory over all evil powers in the world. And And to do that, I need to give you a little bit more of the story. So you know the Bible opens in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this beautiful creation. And he places the crown of his creation, us humankind, and he says, you're going to be made in my image. And essentially, you're going to rule on my behalf, that we're going to co-rule with God and his kingdom. But very early on, by Genesis 3, we realize something is totally wrong. There is an intruder in God's creation. There is an un- unwanted and unwelcome guest And the Bible depicts this intruder as a snake, as a serpent. And whatever the point of that is, the theological point is the same. There is an intruder in God's world, a deceiver, an enemy. And he tricks Adam and Eve into disobeying God. And this results in their separation from God's presence, their blaming of their behavior on each other, and all kinds of other strife and fallenness in our world. And so you have to understand that from Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible, basically. The context is a war zone, that the world is at war. The world is not the way God intended to be, that there are enemies of God in the world. And so very early on, you see that the story turns, violence erupts. You see murder, you see envy, strife, you see conflict, you see sexual immorality, all of these things. And then you see that people start worshiping other gods. They, make, they actually make idols and they begin to worship those idols as well. And we have to ask, well, if God created the world, where did all this come from? Well, it comes from the enemy of God. It comes from Satan. Sometimes he's called the devil. Sometimes we just call him the enemy. And some of you, you have no problem believing in Satan because you've experienced the spiritual realm. You've experienced temptation. You've experienced trials. You have seen things with your eyes that have revealed this to you. I think other people in our culture have a hard time thinking about this or believing it because You haven't been taught about it in the church. Or you've just heard the caricatures of some type of red little creature. That just sounds weird and spooky. Well, that's not really what the Bible is teaching us here. And I found a helpful illustration, and I've shared this before in a sermon. So if it calls to mind something to you, it's because I've said it before. But it works, so I want to say it again. You know, we all believe in invisible forces that impact our world. When I go up to dunk a basketball, there is a mysterious force that pulls me. Back to the ground. And now I can only jump about two inches. It's called gravity. It's a force. There's all kinds of forces we believe in that we don't, we're not even aware of, almost, we're not aware of, like, really ever, we are aware of these things. Magnetic, Magnetic waves, radio waves, electronic waves, sound waves, all of these things that we believe in that heavily impact our world. Don't they? Our world exists and operates because of these things. And in the same way, that is true Spiritually. There are all kinds of invisible forces in the world, dark forces, evil forces, and also the forces of light, angels as well, that impact our world all the time. And most of the time, we're not aware of it. We don't see them. We're not aware of what's going on in the spiritual realm. But the Bible teaches that behind the scenes, if you can pull back the curtain on the world and see into the spiritual realm, there's a lot going on. And Satan is really active. He's a powerful, invisible force. The Apostle John says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's a lot of power. I want to give you just a bunch of things that the Bible says Satan does. Here's a list. Says so Satan can take, takes away uh, the word of God from its hearers. He inspires evil intentions or actions. He can be the author of diseases. He uh, tempts people to sin. He impedes people from ministry. He deceives people. He can be responsible for persecution and imprisonment. He holds people captive to do his will. And he prowls around like a lion, looking to steal, kill, and destroy. It's a powerful enemy. Biblical scholar Greg Boyd, he notes that the New Testament authors, they saw demonic influences in everything that was not consistent with God's reign. Swearing oaths, temptation, lying, legalism, false teachings, anger, spiritual blindness, and persecution were all seen as being satanically inspired. We are in a war zone. And the war started in Genesis 3 when Satan tricked humanity. And at that, but at that very moment, something amazing happens because God puts a plan in place to defeat his enemy. And in fact, it's the, it's the first prophecy of the Messiah in the entire Bible. And it's in Genesis 3. And God is, ta- is talking to Satan, talking to the serpent, and he says, and he says this, Genesis 3.15, first prophecy of Christ in the Bible, says, I will cause hostility between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, an offspring of the woman will one day defeat Satan, the serpent, the enemy of God. And notice that it is a, it's not just any offspring, it, it is it's is a person, It is he who will strike your head. This is the Messiah, the Christ. And so now, it's finally here. On Palm Sunday, Jesus is about to crush the serpent's head. He is about to win the victory over the enemy of God. In the passage that Navi read for us this morning, Colossians 2, it says, Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities. And I'm going to be using this word disarmed throughout this sermon. And it's very intentional because it's not destroyed. The enemy's still here, the enemy's still around, but his power has been disarmed. It's been nullified because Jesus has won the victory. So how did Jesus do it? How did he disarm Satan and the enemies of God through the cross? Let me give you a few things. The first thing Jesus did is Jesus disarmed Satan's accusations. He disarmed Satan's accusations. The word Satan comes from the Hebrew Satan, and it means the accuser, the one who accuses. And this brings us back into the metaphor of the courtroom, and it pictures us standing before God, and, and Satan is the prosecuting attorney, accusing us of how guilty we are before God. And Satan, he, just, he is pure evil. He wants us to be separated from God. He wants, he wants to deceive us into sin, so now he has a weapon against us. He can now accuse us of sin when we fall into it. And this is sometimes why you'll read in the Bible that the law is described as something that kind of binds us, uh, because Uh, if Satan can get us to break the laws of God, now we're under the curse and condemnation of the law. And so Satan, he uses the law against us so that he can accuse us before God of our guilt. And so now that Satan can accuse us, what he does is he will try to bury you in guilt and shame. He will constantly be telling you how guilty you are before God, how shameful you ought to feel, how much there's no way that God could possibly love me anymore because of how much bad things that I have done. These are all the lies that the enemy will use against us. He will tell us that we can't be forgiven, that grace is run out, that the cross isn't effective for us. All of these lies that he tells us to, to accuse us before God. But Colossians three thirteen through 14, this is what Jesus did. It says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross the time of Paul's day, when you owed a great debt, it usually got written down on a slip of paper of all the things that you have owed. And the, Paul is using this metaphor to say all the debt that we paid, all the sin that we had, Jesus took all of that away. And in fact, he took that piece of paper and he nailed it to the cross. So it's done away with, it's canceled. So Satan, he doesn't have any ammo anymore. His accusations have no basis. So when he reminds you that you are guilty, that you are condemned, that you are full of shame, you can tell him, no way, Jesus has taken all of my debt away. He has taken all my sin away. All of his ammo, it is no longer good because Jesus has disarmed his accusations. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. Satan has no more basis to accuse us because Jesus has taken it all away. The second thing that Jesus did is that Jesus... He disarmed Satan's deceptions. He disarmed Satan's deceptions. Jesus had this to say about Satan. He said, There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In fact, all lies find their root in what Satan has done. He is the father of lies. And this is one of the primary ways that Satan works. He deceives, he lies, he he tricks and so what, what Satan does is he actually gets many people to believe the same lies. Uh, and so be, and when he does that, he has an e- easier time deceiving us because he can use the influence of all the people who have already fell for his trap. And so Satan, he can influence what entire cultures think, value, and believe, and practice. And so this, what happens is this, this mindset develops, and it's, the mind, and it's a mindset that's influenced by Satan. And the Bible calls this mindset... The world, quote-unquote. The world. It's the pattern of deceived thinking, of values and beliefs that have infiltrated most, if not the majority, of all people. This is really dangerous, because we are very susceptible to the bandwagon fallacy. This is the idea that we believe that something must be true, it must be good, because so many people believe and think and live that way. Now, if you know me at all, as a sports fan, you know I am a huge bandwagon fan. Self-admittedly, I am a huge bandwagon fan. I love jumping on the bandwagon. I love it. It's great. I love, I love winners. I love rooting for people who win. I'm rooting for Tiger Woods to get that fifth green jacket this morning. Uh, I, I love rooting for the winners. I don't know why. I just admit it. And so I, before I moved to Chicago, I had never once rooted for the Cubs. Never once. You'll have to forgive me for that. But in 2016, you better, be- no, better believe who was I rooting for. The Chicago Cubs at the Jairus' house, we were rooting for them in the World Series. This was great. I jumped on the bandwagon. I was glad to do it. I mean, how many more people became Cubs fans that year that weren't really outspoken before? Right? How many people were, were serious Bulls fans in the 90s? How many people are big Bulls fans today? We are all susceptible to jumping on the bandwagon. And so the bandwagon effect is what happens is certain beliefs, certain values, certain trends in society get popular, they they grow in popularity, and Satan uses that to trap us, to deceive us, and to trick us because he thinks, well, so many other people believe this way, so many other people live this way, so many people think this is good and true and right, that it must be true. And so Satan, he's constantly at work spreading lies, lies about God, about life, about Jesus, about all kinds of things. And the Bible calls this, this is the world. And that's why it warns us to not be attached to the world. In fact, the Apostle John said this. He said, Do not love the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And if it doesn't come from the Father, who is it coming from? It's coming from Satan and his influence in the world. And so we're tempted to jump on the bandwagon of the world's thinking. And this is what makes Satan so tricky and so deceptive. And traps us in lies. He says, well, you won't really fit in if you believe and do that. You won't really be liked. You won't really be accepted by the community if you believe this or taught this or acted like this. And so Satan traps us in that. And what's so dangerous about Satan's deceptions is that they're intended to deceive. They're not obvious. It's not an obvious thing. If it was obvious, people wouldn't be trapped by it. Uh, It's not something that's easy to detect. It's going to look innocent. It's going to look look right. It might even look completely truthful to you. But that's exactly how Satan wants it. And I love how how C.S. Lewis put this. He said, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden warnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, that's how Satan works. He doesn't want you to know he's trapping you. It's a deception. It's a deceit. And it's not, it's not going to come with a big warning and a flash and say, hey, you're falling into a trap here. It doesn't work like that. No, it's going to take effort. But Jesus, he came to totally disarm Satan's deceptions by teaching us the truth. The truth. John eight thirty-two. he said this. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus came to teach us the truth against Satan's lies. And so Jesus' is teaching ministry, this was essential in him destroying Satan's work. And Jesus came teaching us the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about our world, the truth about his kingdom, the truth of how we are saved, and how all of this works together. And tr- that truth sets us free. And the ultimate truth that Jesus taught us was the truth that he revealed on the way to the cross in his resurrection. Because through that we see the love of God poured out for us. That yes, God really does love us. That yes, God really is against sin. And that yes, God has provided a way of salvation. And yes, Jesus was really God because God raised him three days later. He didn't stay in that grave and that vindicated everything that Jesus said was true because he came back again. And today the Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus by guiding us into all truth so that we don't fall into the deceptions of the enemy. So this is what Jesus has done. He has disarmed Satan's accusations. He has disarmed his deceptions. And finally, Jesus has disarmed Satan's power. He has disarmed Satan's power. Now, we've already discussed how powerful Satan is. uh, And that's why uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, the Apostle Peter, he said this. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour Now when Satan is prowling around, he's looking for some type of entry, some type of weakness, some type of foothold in your life. And the scary part is we all have this part of us that is prone to sin. Uh, You know, the Bible calls it our flesh or maybe our sinful nature. And it's that weak part of us that wants to sin, even though we know... That the, the thing I, I am tempted to do might harm, harm me, it might harm my family, it might hurt other people, it might make me feel bad and ashamed and guilty. Even though I know all of that, there's still a part of me that wants the sin. There's still a part of me that is, that is tempted, that desires it. And that part of us that desires sin, the Bible calls the flesh, the sinful nature. And Satan prays upon this. He prays upon the flesh to, get, to entice us, to entice us to sin, but Jesus through the cross he has disarmed this power of the enemy because when we are in Christ that means our flesh the old nature it means it was destroyed on the cross of Christ galatians 5:24 those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires The old self, it's destroyed, it's gone, it's crucified. When you unite yourself to Jesus, you unite yourself to what he has done. And so your flesh is crucified on the cross with his. And not only is the old self destroyed, Jesus commissions a new power to be in you. The power of his spirit to be in us, to overcome all the schemes of the enemy. And this is why the Apostle John could say, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Guys, this is something to be gloriously happy about because the Holy Spirit is now in us. And that means no power of hell is, is strong enough to stand against you. No temptation that comes your way. No trial that comes your way. Nothing in all the world, in all of Satan's tricks and schemes is power, powerful enough because you have the power of the living God inside you. And that means the wrong desires that exist outside of you are not as strong as the, the, the power that is within you. And you can overcome anything because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That He is greater. He is stronger. Nothing can overcome Christ in us. So even though Satan is powerful, even though he's still around, even though he's still deceiving, his power has been nullified because I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and his power is greater. His power is stronger. And so through Christ, we can put to death the old nature and put on our new nature and be transformed. So Jesus has done this. He has disarmed the power of the enemy. And Finally, Jesus invaded enemy territory, and launched his kingdom. So prior to Jesus coming, since Genesis 3, the world has been under the power of the enemy, the evil one. So the world has been enemy territory. Now, when an army invades an enemy territory, they usually set up some type of of, of base, a camp. You might have heard it called a beachhead. And they they set up this, this, this boundary where they can begin to invade the territory of the enemy and gain ground. And this is what Jesus did when he came announcing that the kingdom of God was here. He was effectively, he was establishing a beachhead in enemy territory, ready to take ground back from the enemy. And so Greg Boyd says this, he says, To say the kingdom of God has come is to say the kingdom of Satan has been defeated. As Jesus brings in his kingdom, he is driving the kingdom of Satan out. And through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has won the victory in the battle. But I think many people ask, well, how come it doesn't look like it? How come it looks like Satan still has so much power in the world? How come the world looks so broken? How come there's so much evil still happening? And friends, the answer is because the battle has only begun. The battle has only begun. And the way that I found helpful for me to understand this is is to say that we live between D-Day and V-Day. We live between D-Day and V-Day. Now, some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you, you need a World War II refresher here. But uh, basically what happened is on D-Day, on, on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces invaded German-controlled France on the beach of Normandy. And this, this invasion of enemy territory was so successful, it was, it was so powerful that people uh, later, later said that the war was won on D-Day. That that was the day that the, that the victory was accomplished. That finally Germany was defeated. But the problem was the war was not over on D-Day. There were 337 more days of battles and fighting and bloodshed in World War II. And the war raged on until finally Germany surrendered on May 7, 1945. And the next day, May 8, was declared VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So friends, we live between D-Day and V-Day. Calvary, A.D. 33 or so, was our D-Day. Jesus came invading the kingdom of Satan and setting up the kingdom of God. It was his decisive victory over over Satan and his forces. And we know what the outcome of the war is going to be. Jesus has won the war. Satan is defeated. His powers have been disarmed and his time is running out. But until V-Day, the battle rages on. And so that's why my application to you this morning is we must join the war. We must join the war effort. We must fight the dark side. We must join the resistance. We must join the rebellion. We must be the the light fighting the darkness. Now, friends, this is just a metaphor. You know, I think some people might be uncomfortable with war metaphors these days. Uh, This is no condoning of violence because Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of violence. It's a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of love. In fact, it's not, it's not a kingdom that, that kills enemies. It's a, it's a kingdom that loves their enemies all the way to the cross. That, in fact, he would die for those who were his enemies. But the metaphor is still important because it reminds us that there is a real war going on. That the battle is not won, that there is a real enemy, and that we have a real part to play in advancing the kingdom of Jesus against the kingdom of darkness. And so we advance this victory by by waging war like Jesus did, by praying for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, by seeking the kingdom first, by doing the deeds of the kingdom, we're actively extending God's reign into the world and driving out the kingdom of darkness. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church in the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overcome it. Brothers and sisters, who has gates? Not the church. Some people, I think, they think the church is a gated community, that this is a nice gate that we can come in here, and this is a nice peaceful area. Well, no, it's not the church that has gates. It's hell that has gates. And you know what gates are for? Gates are for defense. That means the church is playing offense. And the gates of hell cannot overcome the advancing kingdom of God, because Jesus is building his church, and he is inviting his church to advance his kingdom. To drive out darkness, to do the good deeds of light, to drive out evil in the world. We overcome evil by doing good. We overcome evil through the sacrificial love of Jesus and his cross. We have a real part to play. And our Lord is looking for faithful, for brave, for courageous soldiers to join the war effort. You know, I don't know about you, I'm tired of seeing the enemy gaining ground in our world. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of seeing all the bad things on the news. I'm tired of hearing that churches are dying in America, that churches are declining all across our country, many shut their doors. Once vibrant congregations are now dead. I am tired of losing the battle. I want to see a great reversal of the tide. I want to storm the gates of hell and say, no, we are not going to let this happen on our watch. We are going to extend the kingdom. We're going to advance the light. We're going to spread the gospel. I'm tired of losing. I want to win. Do you want to win? I want to win. I want to be on that side. I'm, I am tired of seeing Christians lulled to sleep by our culture, by the enemy, because, because we have so much ease in our life. We are lulled into thinking that it's peacetime rather than wartime. We think it's peacetime rather than wartime. We act like everything is good, but it's time to wake up. It's time to see that Jesus is calling us to advance his kingdom. The church of Jesus Christ needs Christians who are committed to making the church thrive for the sake of the kingdom of God. We need soldiers, Christian soldiers, dedicated to the task of love, service, and generosity and prayer. Because when it's wartime, everybody pitches in. When it's wartime, everyone makes sacrifices. When it's wartime, it means we take risks. It means we play offense, not defense. It means we advance. It means we, we play to win. It means we do hard things. And on Palm Sunday, we must join our victorious king in this great battle. Friends, I believe it's a glorious way to live. It's full of adventure. It's full of fun. It's full of doing amazing things and seeing God work in people's lives. There's no better way to live than to join in with what God is doing, to be a light that drives out darkness. What better way to live than that? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine in the darkness. And as we journey towards the cross and resurrection this week, may we find hope that Jesus has won the battle That yes, we get a part to play, but the victory is assured. Our destiny is secure. Our God has won, and he will reign forever and ever and ever because Jesus has won the victory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.